0: assalamu alaikum everybody ar-rahim. welcome to an amazing Saturday session a Q&A session on Surah al-Hash and uh, Surah al-Noor it's amazing because we did Surah al-Hash uh, at the end of May so it's been a while um, and it's amazing that we are we covered a lot of ground in in these last I mean now we're in July so it's, it's a lot of time um, but I'm excited for um, you know a review of some of these really powerful surahs um, first, I, I just wanted to again call attention to an incredible khutbah. As usual, um, yesterday um, we we call it um, the cost, the Muslim cost of SCOTUS, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, um, and the dawning of the new colonizer. Um, there was so much in this um, in this one khutbah that is really important for people to know. Sheikh obviously went through. Um, Really, the, when we say the Muslim cost, it's like, you know, what, what is the implication for Muslims of these Supreme Court decisions that have recently come through? It's a right wing um, Supreme Court. Um, and it really ties into what we've been talking about um, with regard to rights. Um, because when you start losing rights on one front, you lose rights across the board. Um, as a minority group, it's something that's really important for us to understand. Um, And so there was just so much depth of knowledge that he shared with us um, from a legal perspective. It's really important um, for everyone to to watch. Um, And then in the second khutbah, he talked about really the landscape of our current situation with all the players, all the Muslim leadership players, um, and how things are coming together to um, basically create a new era of colonialism under uh israel at at the head of the game Uh, but it's you know with all the muslim leadership complicit so it's a it's a dark and stark story it's important for us to understand because a lot of this was really driven um by an ideology and money Um, and it's you know you've got one side that has the power and the money and the seriousness the commitment to their ideology and then you've got you know Muslims on the other side that are pretty much just on the receiving end feeling helpless feeling unable but it's not because we don't have the tools I think it's more the lack of willingness and I think when hopefully um, when you if you listen to this or you read this the, you know this khutbah um, when you see the whole picture together it's really stark and startling um, it, it's depressing but at the same time it can be seen as hopeful because you see what can be accomplished when you know, even just one person puts their mind, um, their money, their passion um, into you know, achieving an objective. And that's certainly something that we can do to overcome this issue. But we have to begin by, by taking things seriously um, and you know, understanding what happened, educating ourselves, and then coming together. So I hope that this learning can help um, energize people um, and, you know, inspire some smart thinking and some commitment to to fighting back and, and changing our um, our situation. And let me just say, like, last week's khutbah was also amazing. It was called um, The Myth of the Decent Person and the Sin of Hajj. And I did get some, you know, some emails about um, people being touched by this very idea that, you know, with... with um, the current situation of hajj and who's in power and where the money goes, if if you know, regular Muslims want to go to hajj, um, and and how that constitutes a sin from the professor's perspective, from Sheikh's perspective, um, people were asking me that, that touched a lot of people, and they were asking me if they could read that, you know, um, and we we always you know um, circulate. A written summary in our weekly email but people are also asking for a link and so I wanted to highlight for people we actually on our website at um have all of these written summaries available after that weekly email so if you go to our website go to the Chutbah section there's a subsection called written summaries and then you can actually find what we presented in the weekly email there so um you know if you if you can't watch it or you know you prefer to read it it's there as, as well as um previous chutbas and so it's um extremely powerful especially if you want to share it with other people um and and that's the, the you know some of the correspondence that i got is that they wanted to be able to share it with people that they knew wouldn't watch and so that's a very valuable resource for you um also i wanted to call attention you know obviously we have had a lot of discussions here about um, you know, well, it, it came out as makeup or calling attention to oneself, you know the implication of lower your gaze. Um, and I wanted to just highlight that Sharif wrote a really powerful, profound, um, brilliant piece um, as the you know guest writer for the weekly email. And we also do put those write-ups on our website. So if you didn't um, if you don't subscribe or you didn't get it, You can find it all there. His write-up is, um, if you go to the website, uh, we have a a section of archives. And if you click on that, you'll find um, where we have the weekly email write-up. And I really encourage people to read it because this is not just, a superficial discussion about whether makeup is okay or not okay it's a much larger issue that I think a lot of people missed and I think Sharif really hit it on the head and I got a lot of really positive feedback about his write-up um, it's really smart really profound and it puts things in pr- into perspective it's it's you know it's not about makeup it's about what what it is that you uh, what is your vanity effectively and it could be anything it doesn't have to be anything even related to makeup so um, it's a really important thing to read um, and um, lastly, I thought I would just share this thing that I came across earlier this afternoon that was really disturbing to me. Um, there's, uh, you know, we talk a lot about what's happening um, in India um, and the genocide that is taking place and, you know, gaining speed. And I never go on Twitter, but I happen to see um, in my email that there there's an, a professor at Rutgers University, her name is Audrey Trushke. I'm not sure if I'm saying this the right way, but she focuses on South Asian um, you know, um, I guess, you know, she, she focuses on India, on Hinduism, on, is- on Muslims and, you know, and other things like that. So I'm just introduced to her now. But because she is critical of the right-wing, um, you know, Hindu government, um, she is coming under attack to the point where people are posting on um, Twitter calling for her murder, which was shocking to me because she herself is sharing this on her Twitter feed and showing the discussion going back and forth like well someone should take her out make it look like an accident you know can you believe that she is speaking out against this that the other thing and you know i i'm shocked because it's if this were any other faith tradition any other issue if someone is so boldly posting like hey let's take her out and don't be cowardly in terrorism because you know this is a voice that you know we need to stop in its tracks why is the fbi you know why is this not a crime and, you know, and she's the one that is sharing it and people are like, oh, I'm so sorry, that's really terrible. I mean, we've been in that situation before where people come after you and threaten you and threaten your life and your family and all of this stuff. And it's shocking to see um, this taking place. Um, so I wanted to highlight it because, I mean, I don't know if anyone, you know, this is like a, a Rutgers University is in New Jersey, so she's a professor here in America. Maybe we should have her as a, in, in a um, conversation. About what's happening Um, so it it, it just feels like you know even to that point when it can be um, such a bold threat on Twitter and you feel like the professor is just left there alone to just try and highlight it so inshallah maybe we can try and and figure out you know how we can help it so get to know her writing basically she's obviously saying something very important that you know in the, the other side doesn't want people to know. Again, her name is Audrey Truschke, T-R-U-S-C-H-K-E, I believe, on Twitter. Um, So I know we're going to be doing Q&A. Someone asked also, you know, because we were talking about Hajj and, you know, the sin of Hajj and all of that, I wanted to also take this opportunity. um, I know that we're not speaking yet about Sora al-Hajj, and hopefully that will come down the pike soon. But I, I wanted to actually kick off the Q&A with some uh, questions that I got related to the khutbah from two weeks ago on the Sin of Hajj because I'm sure that a lot of people are, you know, wondering some of these things. This was a, a nice email that I got. Um, and hopefully we can start here and then launch into Surah Hash and, uh, and Surah Noor. Mm-hmm. So, Salaam, hope all is well with you, the sheikh and your family and the team. Um, last week's khutbah was another gem my friends and I today were debating through the sheikh's statement that going to Hajj while this regime is in power and working with this corrupt group is a sin people have thoughts as you can imagine and some questions have come up so I'm wondering whether the sheikh might be able to expand on his statement specifically three main questions came up one whether the Prophet peace be upon him made Hajj or attempted to while the Quraysh were in power Two, whether we can proclaim something as a sin that Allah has commanded And three, whether the logic behind this assertion could be extended to say that even living in America or any country where a government is oppressive and commits injustice is a sin. Um, And then, uh, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure how I feel about this idea that doing Hajj under these circumstances would be a sin. And when these questions were raised, I really wasn't sure how to respond. Any clarity the sheikh can provide would be very much appreciated, given the implications and gravity of the assertion. And also, of course, given that we're in Dulficia, so.
1: Let's start with that. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. rahman Rahim. Subhanallah ali al alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. alamin was-salatu was Muhammad. amin al one must amri Um okay so the the question raises a number of aspects. I mean, and and, um, um, and so a- approaching it um, me- uh, methodically. Okay. So. It is important to jurisprudentially there is a distinction between the question of where one resides and uh, the type of issues raised around Hajj. Uh, Residence in lands of quote-unquote injustice I mean, it is addressed, of course, specifically in the Qur'an. And that the Qur'an creates the obligation or establishes the obligation of avoiding lands of justice. That when Allah asks people, why have you resided in in an area where the place where the people are unjust. And and the question is, is that you are a place where you are oppressed. And as we know that then, uh, uh, the Quran asks rhetorically, but normatively, at the same time, wasn't well, God's land? Couldn't you have migrated? And although we know that these ayat were revealed talking about uh, the uh, the question of Hijrah from Mecca to Medina, but they have normative implications well beyond that specific historical incident. Although there is a hadith, although there is a hadith that says, hijrat abad that the hadith implies that the question of hijra from the lands of injustice or places where, of istidhaf, or places where one is oppressed, that question has ended, has been closed after the conquering of Mecca, after the Fatah of Mecca. However, however, while some scholars relying on this Hadith said that the, the obligation of Hijrah has come to an end. It, it, we, we shouldn't talk about an obligation of Hijrah uh, anymore. Um, it, but the majority of scholars, for a variety of reasons. Some of them did not accept the Hadith as authentic. Some of them accepted the Hadith as authentic, but said it did not intend to abrogate the obligation of Hijrah from the lands of oppression, but rather it was talking about the specific Hijrah of from Mecca to Medina Regardless, the majority of scholars said no, the obligation of Hijrah from lands of oppression remains till the final day. Now, there is a further question, and it's a very, it's a, it's a, I mean, people don't, can't imagine how many fatawa, how much jurisprudence, how much has been written on these questions throughout Islamic history. There is a very intense jurisprudential debate and moral debate. So let's assume that the obligation of Hijrah, that you have an obligation to migrate from places where there is oppression. Does this mean that by definition, the lands, the abode of Islam, the Dar al-Islam, are abode of justice and abode of where non-Muslim territories or non-Muslim sovereigns are, by definition, abodes of injustice. And that was, that one can understand why this would be a very important debate, because let's assume, Is Muslim territory is unjust and non-Muslim territory is just or more just. So then who should you give priority to? Do you you prioritize living in the unjust Muslim territory? Or do you prioritize living in the just non-Muslim territory? And the majority of scholars said, you, you know, there are, like the Hanbalis, most of them said that, no, you, you live in Muslim territory even if it's unjust. But Hanafis, Malikis, and most Shafis said that, uh, no, substantive justice is what matters. It's, it's not the issue, is not whether a territory is formally Muslim or formally non-Muslim but rather you have an affirmative obligation to live in territory that is more just in relative to other territory is the relatively more just. Um, and even many scholars went further and they said <coughs> that the, y- you must live wherever you can do izhar ad-din. Izhar ad-din Basically means freedom of practice where you can, you can freely practice your faith, that that's where you should reside. So if you can't practice your faith freely in Muslim countries, then you have to give priority to non-Muslim countries if that's where you can freely practice your faith. But so my point is, and I've, there is so much published. There are books published about this. One of my former students published an, an, an entire, his, it was based on his PhD dissertation he published an entire book on the subject. There are other books that were published in, I'm talking about books in English, um, about the issue of Wajib al-Hijrah. I've published a number of um, scholarly articles on this topic, but the question of residence and hijrah and, and board of justice, abode of Islam, abode of kufr, abode, etc., etc. Et it's really separate, it's distinct from the question of Hajj. Because with Hajj, you have Hajj is one of the five pillars of Islam, it is a religious obligation. The issue is not whether you can live in unjust territory or unjust lands. I mean, even the question, supposes, uh, says, well, you know, should we live in the United States where it's Relative to what? I mean, so United States is more just than Saudi Arabia. United States is more just than Egypt. United States is more just than Syria. United States is more just than Iraq, we, you know. So it, the equating justice and injustice with uh, the claim of Islamic identity, I, I think, is very superficial and very misguided. But other than that, this because it, clear thinking is is, is important. Allah has commanded that we perform hajj if you're able to do so, once in a lifetime. And it is a religious obligation. Whether you can live under an unjust sovereign, whether you can work with an unjust sovereign, these are all very important moral and legal issues but they're separate and apart the reason they're separate and apart is that now you have someone that discharges the authorities that that control the practice of hajj the authorities that have asserted sovereign dominance over the holy sites Are committing blasphemous acts against the holy sites. So you have your holy sites but the authorities in power, A, that we know that Al-Saud only controlled the Hijaz and asserted sovereign dominance over the Hijaz only with the support of British colonial powers and then American colonial powers. And but for British colonialism, and then but for American colonialism, their position vis-a-vis the Hijaz would have not been sustainable. And we know that historically, al-Saud, when they took over the Hijaz, they Hijaz went from an extremely, extremely culturally diverse and rich Islamic lands to lands that where, where all diversity was stripped. In other words, they, what they implemented in Hijaz, what Al-Saud did with the Hijaz, were numerous acts of bid'ah, it was bid'a upon bid'a upon bid'ah upon bid'ah, And there's a book that came, just came out about the intellectual life in Hijaz before the Wahhabis, before al-Saud. That, I mean, we just Muslims were very educated about our own tradition. Okay, furthermore, they destroyed an enormous amount of Islamic historical sites that had survived from the time of the Prophet ﷺ, to the time that they took over. So, and these are bid'ah for, because you have generations of Muslims from the Sahaba till our day that had preserved historical sites. And we all know things like they turned the home of Khadijah into a toilet, public toilet. And they turned, they they destroyed the home of this Sahabi and the home of that Sahabi. And and now, all of these were heretical acts. Even when the crown prince stood on top of the Kaaba, that was a grossly heretical act. Far more, all these people who are upset about whether a woman is muhajjabah or not, (laughs) Someone stomping upon your Kaaba is far more heretical than all the women of the world walking nude night and day. And yet, Muslims were like zombies. We all saw on on camera this idiot stomping upon the Kaaba and no reaction. Okay, so the bidah of changing the madahib in the Hijaz, the bidah of the destruction of the historical sites in the Hijaz, the bidah of violating the sanctity of the holy sites in the Hijaz. But then on top of all of that is changing the moral landscape of the Hijaz. The crown prince destroyed much of the historical Hijaz including all the old homes, and turned Mecca and Medina into centers for capitalist consumerism. It, they, while our Prophet, والسلام, his entire message were about absolute modesty and humility, and asticism, and surviving on very little, and the very theology of Hijaz is a theology of equality, and severe temperance, and dedication to zikr, and rejection of all forms of materialism and consumerism, our holy sites have been turned into the exact opposite. So I pose the question, If our Prophet would come today and see Mecca and Medina, from everything that you know about the Sunnah, what would the Prophet say when he sees Sheraton and Hilton and uh, 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 what do you call the uh, coffee place, uh, Starbucks Starbucks Mm -hmm. and you know, fine dining and high rises and even building a building higher than the Kaaba. You guys don't realize that for generations, it was an established dogma in Islamic law and morality that in Mecca, no building was allowed to be higher than the Kaaba. Because this goes back to the companions of the Prophet and Ali Bait who said, "No building can be higher than the Kaaba." You go to Mecca today; tons of buildings are higher than the Kaaba. Now, okay, so we, we've been o- overlook all of this, overlook all all of that, and I wouldn't say I, I, I you know, people would ask me, "Is it haram to go to Hajj?" And I would say, "No, no, no." You know, I, 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 I couldn't get myself to to say anything, because, because of, of the centrality of hajj. So what was the breaking point? The breaking point is when you allow a well-known Islamophobic company, with investors that are known as Hindu nationalists and a part of Modi's political party, that are openly, unapologetically Islamophobic, that have committed genocidal crimes against Muslims in India. And you come and you tell them here, profit from the Hajj. You contract them So if I spend money on hajj, the money is not just going to the corrupt Saudi regime, who we all know spend their money on excessive luxuries around the world. I'm spending hajj money. This hajj money goes to Al Saud family. What does the Al Saud family do with this hajj money? spend it on prostitutes in Paris and cruises and palaces and everything that is un-Islamic. Now, on top of that, this money is going to go to support a party that is committing a genocide against Muslims in India. Now, on top of that, This same company has well-known ties to Israel, who we all know has usurped Jerusalem and continues to commit an unrestrained genocide against Palestinians. Now on top of that, we know that Saudi Arabia has turned the Hajj into a trap. If you are Egyptian and you go to Hajj and and the Egyptian government has a political problem with you, Saudi Arabia will arrest you and will turn you over to the Egyptian government. They've done that with the Uyghur Muslims. Poor Chinese Muslims who have gone to Hajj were arrested and then the Mufti of Saudi Arabia issues a fatwa saying, it is halal, halal, halal to do so. To, to arrest the Chinese Muslims and turn them over to the Chinese government. You should know that in Islamic history, there is an article, very good article, that was published about this. Maybe we can put it up on our website or something. In Islamic history, there were numerous Jews that issued fatawa against Hajj, when those who controlled Hajj were deviant or blasphemous parties. Furthermore, even today, there are Libyan jurists who have issued fatawa against Hajj. There are Yemeni jurists who are issued, because this same regime that we are putting money in their pocket Is using this money to murder Yemenis and so many Yemeni jurors said you it's haram you're spending money so they can kill us many Libyan jurors did the same thing many Egyptian jurors who are against Sisi's government said the same thing because Saudi Arabia and the Emirat and are using their monies for evil purposes for purposes that hurt the Islamic Ummah, not help the Islamic Ummah. So in light of all of this, it is not a generic question of oh well, you know, uh, we live in the United States and the United States is not a Muslim country, so, you know, it's all the same. You have an an affirmative, the reason you live in the United States if Listen, if, if you could live a decent life in a place where your money is not going to be used to hurt Muslims, then that's where you should live. But the fact of the matter is, is that the United States and the white world, the, the colonial world, the world of the white man, is the world that, this is what controls and dominates the world. If you live in China, it's not better for Muslims. If you live in Russia, it's not better for Muslims. This is the center of power. This, this is, the, the modern world was created and engineered in the white in, in, in white land, in, the, in, in Europe and the United States, i.e. the colonial power that, 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 that created everything from the United Nations to, to modern systems of knowledge. So in other words, now, if you live in this universe and you don't use your position to help other Muslims, then absolutely you should leave then the your residence here is haram. If you come to the United States and you just make money so you can enrich yourself and just spend money on your kids, no, go, go live in any miserable uh, land. But if you live in the United States or any part of the colonial world, you must have an affirmative intention to help your fellow Muslims. You must educate your children so that they get, can occupy important positions so, if, 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 so that they can help their fellow Muslims. In other words, your intentionality must be firmly anchored in helping the ummah. The thing is, you can't have that intention in Saudi because they'll throw you in prison and you'll disappear. You can't have that intention in Egypt. You can't have that intention in Iran. You can't have that intention in Pakistan. Because the systems of governance in these countries are so oppressive, so subservient to colonial powers, that they have no autonomy and no sovereignty. And you, in turn, when you live in these countries... You have no autonomy, and you have no sovereignty. If you open your mouth, you'll disappear. If you do anything that displeases the colonial power, you'll disappear. If you do anything that tries to oppose corruption, you'll disappear. Why do we live in the United States and Europe? Because these countries compared to the colonized world, relatively, have systems of law. And while it is still possible for a Muslim to end up in Guantanamo, but relatively, relative to countries like Egypt and Saudi Arabia and so on, it is harder. And so we come to these countries, again, I emphasize, I believe, if you come to this country and just take care of yourself and your family, you are committing a sin, a sin, a sin, a sin. No question. If, if the purpose of your life is just to consume and die, then do it in, anywhere then, you know, yeah, go live under an oppressive regime in Egypt. Go go be part of the the corruption. I mean, you're you're probably going to end up in hellfire anyway, so it doesn't matter. But if you come to the West, you must have an affirmative, constant intention to change the dynamics of power. So that the colonizer can stop oppressing, so the colonizer can allow Muslims to breathe. Listen, just recently, there was a revolution in Tunisia. The Tunisian people elected an Islamic party that came to power. France and the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. But these countries, spearheaded by France and the U.S., saw the election of a mildly Islamic party like the Renaissance party as an extreme danger. What was the result? They kept pressuring Tunisia, pressuring Tunisia until... there was a coup, the Islamists were thrown out of power, and Tunisia now is passing a constitution where Islam is not the religion of the state. So while European countries are free to declare Christianity, the religion of the state, and that's not inconsistent with democracy, no Muslim country, can think freely about its relationship to Islam. So if you reside in Britain or in France or the US, you must be like, you must be like, what's his name? Uh, the, uh, Richard Koch. You, you, you must constantly have a plan that the day would come when Muslims would be allowed, just simply allowed, a level of autonomy so that they can exercise self-determination. That's all we want, is just allow Muslims to determine their own fate. Because we have no power of self-determination anywhere in the Muslim world. And the centers of power are not in Egypt, are not in Pakistan, are not in Iran, are not in Saudi Arabia. They are in Western capitals of the white man. When are we going to grow up? Now, go back to the issue of Hajj. So now, what do I do? If I spend money on Hajj, I know this money is going to go to the Hindu... Fascist nationalists, Islamophobes. It's going to go to a company that is in bed with Israel. It's going to go to one of the most corrupt ruling families that history has seen, anywhere. Al Saud have been a curse unlike any other upon Muslims. So what do I do? My answer is, which is what jurists throughout Islamic history that have issued fatawa, telling Muslims to abstain from hajj, when things were so bad, is that you have an obligation, The, 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 the legal obligation, you must always have the intention, sincere intention, that Allah, if the circumstances would change, I would promptly go to hajj. Unable to to do so in your lifetime, because we, Al-Saud, will probably be in power for as long as the Israelis and the Americans want them to be in power. We have no self-determination. We have no self-determination. So then you calculate how much money you would have spent on hajj? If, let's say $20,000. Then then this money that would have been spent on hajj, you take and you spend as a sadaqah to help the victims of oppressive regimes the victims of Saudi oppression, Emirati oppression, Israeli oppression, Indian oppression, Chinese oppression. So it is not that you just say, "Okay, well, I don't have to worry about Hajj." No, you calculate the money, and you 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 must spend that money. And with Allah, you say, "Allah, I I I wasn't able to go to Hajj for reasons that you know." But here is the money that I would have spent on hajj, instead of giving it to the dhalimun, giving it to the unjust, I'm giving it to the victims of injustice. And inshallah with that, Allah would accept your excuse and forgive the fact that you are unable to go to hajj. It kills me because I, I to, to, see, to see the land of our Prophet, it blows my mind those people who'd like to pretend to be Salafis and pretend to be Sunnis and pretend to follow the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu <laughs> Alaihi Wasallam. Don't you read but texts? I mean, you, you love to pretend that you follow the Hadith. Don't you read the descriptions of Mecca in Bukhari? Or Muslim or any of the books of a Hadith? Would the Prophet والسلام, would have he just happily sat in Holiday Inn and, and, and ordered the cappuccino and sat there and, and enjoyed the, 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 the amenities that exist in Mecca? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine any of the companions, Omar ibn Khattab or Abu Bakr or Ali ibn Abi Talib, sitting there in and, and, and Starbucks and ordering? You know What, what, what craziness are we doing? We know that, that any of these people would have been scandalized with what we've done to Mecca and Medina. And yet we just pretend like, oh, it's okay, it's all okay. It's not okay. And I believe Allah will question each one of us. What, did, what stand did you take? What was your position?
0: Alhamdulillah, thank you. Thank you so much for that clarification. Um, So switching gears, um, I don't know if you want to take a moment, but I wanted to start with my usual question about your personal engagement with Hashir and also Noor. Like what were some of the the key questions that you had and what was was it like when you were approaching these surahs?
1: Let's let's take two minutes. Okay.
0: We need to yeah, change the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> energy. Okay, so let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to start on the other two stories, minutes. inshallah. Okay, this Nachman Rahim. What a great way to start. <laughs> so um, from there it's just gonna get better. Inshallah. Um so we're gonna shift gears and move to Q&A for Hashir and Surah Al Noor. But let me start by asking you because we've been asking several weeks um, about the vicar for Sorat Hash.
1: Yeah, Hash. The vicar uh, is twenty-three and twenty-four. Okay. Um, you you asked about my engagement with the Isora, right?
0: Right. About your own journey with it and just what you were engaged with, you know.
1: Okay, so. Um, Uh okay, so because we're talking about two t- two now, so uh maybe first Al Hash. Um well the first thing is that y- y- I knew that Al Hash addressed a historical event. And and but the thing about Al Hash is it starts out addressing a historical event. and um, And of course, as, as the text itself, as from the, the, the obvious meaning of the ayat, the, it, it's, it's talking about it, an, an incident where a people that it doesn't name. Are expelled, and so on. But notice that the end of Surah Al-Hash is mind-blowing, and this is the thing that I, I've just was um, central in my mind. Al-Malik could do al-Salam al-Mu'min al-Muhaymin al-Aziz al-Jabbar al-Mutakabbir subhanAllah amma yushrikun who Allah al-Khaliq al-Bariq al-Musawwar lahu al-Asma'u al-Husna Yusabi Hulahu mafi al-Samawati wa mafi al-Ardo al-Aziz al-Hakim This ending which literally takes you and it's like opens your eye Forces you. It's like as if it's saying, open your eyes as to who Allah is. And if your eyes are opened and you truly absorb the meaning of these words, or even to a a relative degree, even relatively. absorb a proportion of what these words mean. Al-Malik, Salam, Al-Muhaymin, Al-Jabbar, Al-Mutakabbir. You can't see reality. You can't see the world in the same way again. It, it is like saying, it's as if it takes a human being and lifts the veil and tells you it is all allah is all around you allah is all pervasive allah is in 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 how do i put it in 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 every increment of your being and consciousness it's all about your lord and the fact that it it, it this Statement. It comes at the end of Surah Al Hash, a surah that starts out with a very practical, pragmatic issue, and that is the division of spoils. So, what is the relation? I mean, if you're if you're reading the Quran as a thinking human being, you must ask why do we, why that starts out addressing a, a, a historical pickle? It, it, it's a historical, it's a historical events that presented a real predicament, right? I mean, you have the, the, the spoils of war are going to be divided in a way that is contrary to the people's expectations that is contrary to people's traditions, that is contrary to what people are accustomed to, and yet Allah chooses this context to come and say, understand your Lord. So, of course, if you can read the Tafasir literature and none of the Tafasir explain to you this simple point none of the tafasir will it's it's the tafasir will you know tell you that uh, uh, this is about Banu quraiza and you know the, the, the it, it it's talking about the sacrifice praising the Ansar for their sacrifice and uh, basically you know dem- saying that you know the the, the field belonged to the that because this was um, a territory that was conquered without mm-hmm. battle, without effort, then it, the the spoils are left to the discretion of the Prophet <laughs> a, et etc., etc. And then it, you know, and then a lot of the tafsir, especially the the Sufi tafsir, will focus on the very end of Surah al hash and ignore the beginning of Surah al hash as if there, there's no relation, there's no connection, there's no nexus. And this is what all the research and all the obsession became about and all the dhikr became about, is that Allah, I want, to, I, I, my heart and soul tells me, everything that I've learned about the Quran up to that point tells me, that it's all connected, and that there is a, there is a coherent cohesive message here. And of course, you start going into um inform you inf, your understanding has to be informed by the original comprehensions, in other words, the original authorities, how they understood the surah but you cannot be confined by that understanding The think i dislike about so many modern muslims you know you've got these muslims who i consider to be players they 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 they're fakes and they come and tell you you know all oh, no one understood the quran before and we are going to interpret the Qur'an by allowing the Qur'an to interpret itself. And we, you know, everyone got it wrong. We have no use, you know, Ibn Abba, we have no use for Ibn Abbas, we have no use for Ibn Mas'ud, we have no use for this, we have no use for that. All of them were just useless and focus on what we're saying. That type of arrogance, the Qur'an, does not yield itself to that type of arrogance. The Qur'an only, Allah opens its secrets to those with the greatest humility, who approach it with the utmost humility. And part of the humility is that, of course, I want to know what, how Ibn Abbas understood Surah Al-Hash, what Ibn Mas'ud understood, and I want to be informed by it, but not limited by it this is the way you respect knowledge this is the way you honor tradition you it enriches you but it doesn't imprison you and so of course then you do your your homework you 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 delve in every because you have historical events and you read everything you can get your hands on about the historical events about what the ansar said in in the context of the historical events where Banu Quraiza were defeated and exiled. And what the Muhajirun said, and what the debates between the Ansara and the Muhajirun, and we have the party that promised to support Banu Quraiza and failed to deliver. What did they say? You, you delve into everything about, well, what was Quraisha's relation or role in all of this? And... All of this will inform you why Allah chose this context to say, understand what human beings are prone to al-hashr. Meaning, human beings can, can be motivated to engage In massive movements in mass movements to come together as crowds and there is a very big danger when people come as crowds is that when you come as crowds you can end up diluting responsibility for morality you can destroy the palm trees and say no one is responsible which we've talked about. You can end up committing atrocities. And because no one's specific individuals, what was inconceivable for individuals can be done by masses. And it is precisely at this point that Allah comes and says, limit your hubris limit your ego. It is precisely at this point that Allah comes and says, "No, it it has to be, you have to be motivated by the right moral reasons or your hashr is wrong. And it's precisely at this point that Allah comes and says, you want to be capable of taking the type of Every moral position is a sacrifice. All moral stances involve a sacrifice. Anytime a person is going to stand by ethics and virtue, there will be a sacrifice. You want to be capable of the type of sacrifice that upholds virtue and morality, understand what it's all about. And what it's all about is precisely what Allah tells us in Surah Al-Hash about the nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That there is no role for your ego because Allah is the mutakabber. There is no role for your oppression because Allah is the jabbar. There is no role for... And, and so, I mean, you are in this universe. You tread upon this universe as a guest because this entire universe is engaged in tasbih. In, 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 it, it, it is as if this universe is singing the praises of the Lord. And so tread lightly because it is not about you. And don't think you can control it. And only then will you be capable of these sacrifices. So Surah al-Hash, once it, it clicked, once I understood what is it, imagine, as, I, as we said, that what is it that made the Ansar sacrifice so much and yet remain committed to the Islamic cause do the type of things that we long for people to do today. They share everything with the refugees, with the Muhajirun, and end up being denied and end up remain committed. And then the reason is, is because the, the, the way that the Quran raised them morally, Discipline them morally. So that's al-Hash, and it, it was, it, it, subhanAllah, I mean, it, it's um, um, like so much of the Quran. It, it, once, once you experience it, you're transformed by, by it. You, you're not the same human being. Surat al-Nur which I um, took a lot of more work than compared to al But I mean, it's hard to compare. Um, but Surah al-Nur, you, you have, again, you have at the heart of Surah al-Nur the amount of material that has been written on Ayat al-Nur in the Islamic tradition is enormous. So you already approach the surah with the humility of knowing how much has been written about this one ayah. And the, immediately, Surah al nur challenges you with, with, the, with the, the, the real challenge of understanding what is the light about. I mean, when Allah tells you that your purpose is to 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 disseminate the light, to add to the light, to be a vehicle for the light that all begs the question of what is the light? And it is remarkable because this area is is literally sandwiched between all these laws about modesty and privacy and dignity and respect and humility. And of course then it begs the question, well, what is the relationship between all these laws and the light? Is it, as so many scholars in Islamic history have done, they assumed that the light means you implement this law and that law and this law, that if you punish someone for committing fornication, then that's the light, but we know intuitively, rationally, sociologically, that, that doesn't jive. It, it doesn't feel very lightful. It doesn't feel very illuminating just because I punish someone for fornication. You could cancel your intellect and your heart and pretend that, no, no, no I'm, I'm not going to think about it. This has to be the light and no further. But if, you under, if you've read enough about the history of law, comparative law, legal systems, you know that legal systems are capable of being vehicles, even with the best of intentions, are capable of being vehicles for an enormous amount of darkness. And what I mean by darkness here is a, a dissatisfaction, suffering, misery. Um, Law is a very double-edged thing. It it can be a vehicle for liberation, and it could be a vehicle for great oppression. And it seemed to me that, again, it's very purposeful to center the metaphor about light, right in the heart of these, these ayat on the laws that we talked about. And then I noticed that, I, it actually came to me in a, in, as I was doing dhikr and, on surah An-Nur, that image of the pyramid. I, I saw it in prayer. I saw it in sleep. I would wake up from sleep and dreaming that pyramid. And then once I, I saw that, I it, it became very clear that Surat al-Nur was structured like a pyramid, with Ayat al-Nur in the in the pinnacle of that pyramid, and that the this the image of the pyramid informed the entire understanding of Surat al-Nur. Um, again, the tafasir, you know, they don't, they don't tell you anything about how it all fits together. But if you do your historical homework and if you read you research, Everything you can find about the impact of Surah Al-Nur, <clears throat> um, I think it just becomes clear. It becomes clear, and once it becomes clear, it, it becomes so obvious that it, it sort of you wonder how you could have, you know, how could it have ever been seen otherwise. Um, yeah.
0: Do you remember how long ago it was, when or where you were for each of the surahs?
1: Um, Surat so, al Nur and Hash uh, were close to each other. I mean, uh, close, I mean, within the same year. And I th- I have a, f- I'm tempted to say t- 2014, 2015, something like that. Oh. Where were we?
0: Um, we were Van Nuys slash Thousand Oaks.
1: Because I I remember uh, I I remember being in in bed in Van Nuys and reading a lot about like a lot of the material that I was reading a lot sort of the North so.
0: Okay, guys, we're going to open up. I asked Sheikh whether we should stick to one surah and then move to the other. He said, no, just feel free to ask whatever you want to ask. So who would like to kick us off? Thank
2: you,
3: Sheikh. I'm going to try to ask the question in two parts. Um, Surah to Hash in the second verse um, there's a suggestion or god essentially says that he would have punished them in this world and the hereafter but but instead gave them be exile instead um, this really puzzled me
2: yeah and
3: i and i thought maybe you, you can expand on it and i, I was wonder- and and kind of like the 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 way that allah speaks about his attributes also towards the end also really puzzled me why these particular asma' why these and, and, and of course he says at the end all of the asma' belong to, to Allah but um, kind of how you talked about um, the Musabihat or Tanzeeh this sort of thing is like it's almost like a reminder of go back to your your original per- performance what you're, what you're made to do like a bird, you fly so it's like if you, if you remember the attributes then so when he starts with Rahim. I was wondering whether that had anything to do with, because of the the moral decisions that they made during the siege, that the result ended with Banu Nadir in a better state than they could have been in. So that almost, they they almost manifested God's mercy more that even the enemy was allowed to, to leave with their lives, go to a different place, and have a second crack at deciding whether they should know, because that was a message to them as well probably I would assume that they shouldn't have lost and they did and their their um, friends left them essentially so they weren't as strong as they thought that they were either maybe that could have ch- changed their minds and they could have changed camps I don't know so I was wondering what you thought about that uh, and then when you mentioned at the beginning that <laughs> the, 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 that part keeps that the part about the, f- the first hash or gathering or whatever it means just really also captivated me and in verse 14 um as i kept reading the structure it seemed like you were alluding to um a relationship of comparing and contrasting two groups it's like a comparison and contrast between banu nadir and the muslims what made them similar and what made them different Mm. in the beginning there's clear difference in that they're making moral decisions during the siege and that and it's in fact even that the question of the palm trees is confounding to the enemy right Allah Mm -hmm. says that it's meant to almost like break their spirit that wait why are they concerned about such nominal kind of moral uh, questions and then as, as it continues, then the, the landscape shifts and there seems to be almost a reversion to selfishness in which they become more like Banu mm. Because Barun ultimately only cares about how much money they can take back with them. And they accidentally, Muslims almost, it's like as if they're forgetting God and they're forgetting themselves. They're, f- they're reverting back into their human way of, OK, but I need to now take this money back for myself. And so it feels like what you were presenting is the warning. Here comes the warning. You've done well up until now, but don't don't mm. lose the tasbih at this point. And I, I kept looking up the meanings of hash after you had gone through all of that. And it was interesting it, it, the, um there seemed to be this, this understanding of jami'ah or of like even sometimes they would talk about uh, we, we talked about like the gathering in the final day but also a gathering of sheep and, and I was like okay that's almost like spoils as well it's like is so um, there's just so many different things mm-hmm. and here in, in verse 14 it uses the word jamia twice I was like wow that's really interesting there's two uses of that word It almost feels like do you think that that could be a hint of like there are two there are two it's, it's of course it's referring to one group here but it's, it's mentioned twice in the same verse and used a little bit differently. Uh, mm. that, th- that you think that they're a group or a body that is strong, but really from inside they're tearing each other apart. Mm-hmm. Whereas the rest of the, the Surah is telling you, you need to stop thinking the way that they do, which is they're only worried about themselves and they only work together when it benefits themselves. But when, it doesn't benef- but when one of them gets hit, the main guy gets hit, the sheep scatter essentially. Um, so uh, my question is in this regard: is li al hash? is it really suggesting to a temporal like one, two, three type of thing, or, or would it be a stretch for the Arabic to say li awwal al hash is the foremost group, or the best group, or the more moral group? You know, like the prime example, or mm. this is like the prime of your. Of,
1: of groupthink? This is the best of groupthink. You no, know, it, it is, uh, language-wise, al-hash could mean foremost. Could mean foremost. And um, I don't remember who, but actually I remember reading that some of them, for, some. I don't remember which tafsir, but I do remember there was a tafsir that took it to mean foremost rather than the temporal first. Um, I mean, you're raising a lot of interpretive points that I think are all plausible. Um, so I mean, the the relationship, for instance, between hash and um uh the the uses of uh of jamia from from jamma or jama'a around um the layuka tilunakum uh jamiha illafiqura um illafiqhura muhassana min wara ijadar and so on um that and, and the 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 jamia um, that you think that there are what I mean so it, it is a further indication about this whole theme of the masses and when when people um, when do people actually as as what, what, you, you can put it when does the public when does the when do masses come together morally and when do they not come together morally? And when do they come together for good and when do they not come together for good? Uh and I think these are all extrapolations that could be further insights upon Surah al Hash rather than really questions because I you I mean, you, you can these are all idaafat. these are all like Hawashi. على, uh, uh, on further insights on surat al hash um so for instance the whole point about um when you know w- 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 comparing muslims as as a uh, as a collectivity versus the, the Jewish tribes as a collectivity and the danger of moral failure. I mean, th- that's a further insight. You know, I had not thought of that. Um, the same can be said also about why these particular asma, al-Malik, al-Quddus, al-Salam, al-Muhaymin, al um is something there. I mean, I, I, my. It, I have the gut feeling that if one explored that 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 course of inquiry, uh, it would be very fruitful. I didn't. Um, you know, there, there's a there's a point of. Natural point of exhaustion where you just you, you, but but I my intuitive sense is that um, when when Allah chooses all these safat that Allah shows in this context uh, al Jabbar al Mutakabbir and so on are re- in fact related to understanding particularly understanding the role of masses and the danger that the the, the dangers of moral pitfalls that masses could descend into and the normative aspir- moral aspirations that masses should pursue and should reach for and I think that's a further extrapolation that could be written about very fruitfully. Um, the Quran is, is an endless, I mean, endless source of insight. So n- no commentary, no study will will exhaust the field. There will there will always be much more that can be said and will be said, uh, hopefully, if Muslims return back, return to the Quran and take it seriously again. But um, there was, um, you mentioned, um, oh, yeah, this point about, um, that if Allah hadn't written a jala on them, this actually you do find in the tafsir quite a bit of writing about. Um, and most of it is pausing and sort of trying to to, to reflect on um, Okay, so Banu Qurayza, they've if you think of the subtotal of what they did, it is really quite egregious. I mean, at, at, you first approach the prophet and you say, you are the person identified in the Torah. We want wonderful relations with you. Uh, And then, very opportunistically, you wait until there is a point of political vulnerability and you make an alliance with Quraysh. you first you revoke what you know, the the the, the uh what sounded like, you know, a, a very benevolent point of of we're all the same, we're all but then you make an alliance with Quraysh, and then you make an alliance with the the an internal opposition group. The the, and then you first you know there is an agreement that okay we'll leave but we'll come back and um, we we'll, but we'll continue owning the land. Or we'll come back once a year to uh, take care tend to our crops and so on. But still you violate all of that. And. It is, really, um, it is noteworthy. I mean, it, it it makes you pause and think that Allah is, is, is telling. It's as if Allah is telling Banu Qurayza. You know. It was very merciful that after all of this, Allah allows you to simply be exiled. Because it. it, it if you, Allah would have dealt with you directly, in other words, if, if none of this would have been uncovered and you were just left to your fate with God, your fate would have been much worse. And you've got to read this in the context of taking... You know, we, we often act as if God is an afterthought. We we often don't think of God as a real factor ever present in whatever consequences we evaluate and consider, and it is very. Really, I mean, it, it, it you notice that it is as if Allah's telling them, um, because and that's the theme in in the entire entire surah sort of Hash is. Al uh, is it's like you can't get on a al mustaqim you can't get on the moral course of action unless Allah becomes a full reality a full participant in all your det- all your determinations um Yeah, I mean, there's probably more there because I, I have that same feeling that there there is more to uncover in Surat al-Hash, as short as it is. Um, but, yeah, but, I'm, you know, it, it's, if I, I have a feeling that Surat al-Hash, you know, if I, 10 years from now, I, I would still see new things in it. Um there are quite a few surah in the Quran that are like that. Okay. <clears throat> Who's
0: next? Sure.
2: Um, my questions regarding um, Surah Noor, um, in regards to in the beginning of the surah. Um, the the legal prescription for the punishment for for gossiping being lashes. Um, And and I I was just looking for you to to say more on this because what I was considering was that um, the, the actions taken against Aisha were a form of shaming. Of, of gossip and, and there was um, there was extreme shaming going on. And in today's day and age, especially when it comes to like a kind of these, these spiritualist revivals, and it, it, it influences isn't it? it it's influenced psych- psychology and I think it's influenced um, the public mind that shame is something that is bad. Mm-hmm. and you should never experience it and so what I was thinking is that um, it seems like the, the Quran is saying no shame has a place but you need to deal with it correctly and so I was wondering if it's not just that the legal prescription is for it to take place in public so that there's a collective shaming going on so people don't do it but so that's saying here's the correct way to have shame because it makes it more accountable it's not just you know the the family you know it's the, the shaming is taking place in private no, where yeah. it can become something that's ugly or something that's manipulated because you see that a lot and i mean the extreme version of that is is honor killings and um you know you you see the kind of ugliness and the kind of um repressive personalities that develop as a result of becoming extremely burdened by shame and so it seems like in the, in the modern era that it's swung now to the opposite extreme where it's like well shame is bad get rid of shame but that so is Surah Noor also telling us something about the appropriate use of shame and to consider it in regards to how we use it in private space or public space and wh- what is it telling us about that because I think it especially they, you know, as I personally have learned more about the Quran one of the biggest tests for me is to not judge other people and to not use the Qur'an in a way that shames people when I'm talking about it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, does this, is this trying to teach us something about our ability to shame other people and how we should use
1: it? What is remarkable about Surah al nur is this, actually this this point of um, is it's it, you're right it does say something about shame but the whole point is that it's like saying if you want the nur you must internalize and develop within yourself um, the sense of um, Modesty Vis-a-vis Allah In other words It's like exactly what the Prophet Said that Whenever you are tempted to act In private Remember that Allah is with you So to the point that Even you don't walk around uh, You know Just happily in the nude In private Because of a sense of Bashfulness Vis-à-vis the one who's constantly present, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And so you developed that that um, you developed that bashfulness within. It's like the Prophet ﷺ that said that if you have no shame, then you will do anything. If if your attitude is, I've conquered shame, then what you've actually then conquered. Is, you the impulse towards virtue. But, but, what core to Surah Al nur is that shame cannot be used as a weapon against the other. Shame can be used internally to dis- discipline the self, and this is the whole notion about Ghad al basar and the 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 the. the um, the, the whole discourse about Tabarruj, it is, what is Ghad al-Basar? It's like saying have enough internal shame not to stare. Even if you are alone, know that Allah is watching. So don't be shameless and proudly stare and say, well, I have no shame. I I have, you know, I I will boldly stare at at whatever. The the whole notion of Ghadul al-Basar is that, why is that? Because the nature of morality is restraint. The the nature of immorality is to be unrestrained. When you learn to restrain, you are practicing the, the whole notion of I act, when I act, I think of my space and I don't want to transgress upon the space of others. That's the restraint of morality. When you have no, your attitude is that one that has, you feel disdain towards the concept of shame. It's like saying, well, I will act presumptively that any space is mine, and if I happen to transgress upon others, then I won't worry about it. And that is at the core of of how you so much immorality starts. How how much so much so much morality starts unraveling. The to develop shame within, or to develop a a, a sense of modesty. I mean, it, it, the language is, is di- it's difficult because in translation the um, is it's critical for nur- nurturing hum- humility. It's critical for nurturing the light within. But when you look at what Surah Al-Nur, it is precisely when you start um, uh, leveraging the concept of shame as a weapon against others, and th- that that's when it becomes a, a, a problem. I mean, the whole it's it's remarkable. Surah Al-Nur starts from this event with Aisha where it tells the com- the community you, you, you want to know what fahisha is fahisha is that you talk about something is that you, you you take the honor and the dignity of people for granted and you give yourself the right to talk about things that you shouldn't be talking about and then it goes from that to saying, well, learn how to have modesty within your home, modesty within your family, modesty in the way you deal with each other. Learn how to honor one another's privacy. It it is literally like nurturing or literally like um, countering the attitude of crassness and uh, taking the space and dignity of others for granted. You know, so in other words, it's, it's just telling you if in fact you are the type that says nothing embarrasses me, I feel no embarrassment about anything, I like to be, um, to shock people and to, acts crassly, you have no light, and it is, and that is subhanallah. I mean, and in Surah an nur the embodiment, the living embodiment of light, and a a a human being that represents the light is the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. And all the descriptions of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ is that he was a very, um, uh, what is the, 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 bashful human being. That he w- even the, the way he laughed, the way he spoke, uh, he wouldn't, even the descriptions of, you know, he w- if he laughed he covered his mouth. Or that if he, you would never hear him laugh very loudly. Uh, the, the whole demeanor is one of not entitlement vis a vis the world, but it is as if um, I know that I am a guest in this world, and my status as a guest in this world makes me reserved and modest in what I claim and the way I act and how I assert myself. That, you know, when we know that the Prophet, ﷺ, would blush very easily, would uh, never raise his voice in, in context where, you know, people, uh, he would make it a point didn't like to raise his voice even in calling people or when people called him to have I mean and again in Surah Al-Nur it's precisely the Surah that instructs instruction says learn how to speak with dignity and honor to one another so don't call upon the Prophet a.s. like you would call upon one another all of this it goes back to that um that, that 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 singular quality of beauty and modesty. and you're right, our societies, I mean it's part of, of of capitalist society, consumer society. it is all structured on the idea that I make a presentation. Uh, the presentation should appeal to your base impulses because I want you to buy i don't I don't want you to sit there and reflect and think i I want you to desire and buy and so constantly when I appeal to you I have to appeal to something that would invoke an impulse not the intellect but an impulse and so it either has to make you laugh and want to buy, it has to make you crave and want to buy, it, it makes you desire and want to buy. And in order for this commercial system to work to the advantage of the people who you know, uh, are the suppliers, it had to deconstruct modesty in society it it had to say you know flash it show it um don't be bashful you know if you have a, all these expressions that we have if you you know if you have it, it be on display because I, that's how i get you to buy stuff if you if you're not on display you then you're not going to have uh, the 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 desire to buy uh, the desire to buy comes from okay I see things on display and I want to be on display. Now the sad thing is that you know it, it is exactly like societies of jahiliya where morality is structured around the well-being and the promotion of the interests of an elite our entire morality from you know when we teach the concept of coolness to kids or fashion or everything is is structured to serve the interests of a small elite that ultimately benefits from all of all of this And the, 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 the role of moral insights, the role of not just religious leaders, but moral leaders, is to come and say, why are we all, whether we realize it or not, why are we all existence in servitude to the interests of that elite? that keeps getting richer and more powerful. Why can't we have our values come from our engagement with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Maluku Qudus and Jabbar and mutakabbir rather than what this elite, the way this elite wants to shepherd us so that it can maximize itself, in whatever interest it has. Unfortunately, moral challenges to the you know to, to, to this material hedonistic materialistic uh, capitalist world have been in the historical period in which we live have been all defeated but but this is not sustainable we, we're destroying the world this is not it's all going to crumble and when it crumbles people are going to say what went wrong and i hope that muslims who are supposed to be informed by their relationship to their creator w- will have something to benefit the, the the earth at that point. But you know in other words, they will they will pose an alternative. They will be able to engage in that moral critique as to why the heck we've done what we Allah Because I mean this it is just not sustainable. We we've we've seen we, we keep seeing the evidence of um, What this, the darkness that the system creates.
0: Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. Okay. Really. All right. So let me go. Let me go to our list of questions that people submitted. Um, so let me start with Surah Al-Hash then. Um, why does Allah begin and end with the names Al-Aziz and Al-Hakim in relation to all things supplicating God? Allah does this in this Surah as well as many of the Musa- Musabihat. Can we draw a connection between Hikmah and Izza and the Ayah? Do not be like those who forget God, so God causes them to forget themselves. It seems like the contrast to Izzah and Hikmah is ignorance and abasement, which is exactly what happens when we forget ourselves. It is the ultimate form of ignorance and abasement.
1: Yeah, no, this is actually a really good point. Um, Because um, this is precisely on, it's precisely right. That um, without Hikmah, we abase ourselves. But without izzatullah, the the izzat that belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is no hikmah. And that is precisely why those who forget Allah ultimately forget themselves. They, they, They lose, they abase themselves because they've indulged in what is the absence of hikmah. I mean, it, it is precisely like when the, the, the whole logic of jahili society, the whole logic of hedonistic society, um, is a society, the only hikmah in this society is the, the, the hikmah of promoting the interests of a, an elite that, that profits of the needs often the the engineered needs of the masses. So the, the elite, for instance, convinces the masses that you need the Islam, you need the, the to, to the, the blessings of this Godhead or that Godhead. I mean the the whole the, the whole system, system of social belief and social convictions and political interests that are largely engineered by the elite relies on the masses buying into that that the 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 the, 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 the system of belief created by the elite and then the masses then, then the elite profits from the masses. Well what could be a greater abasement for a human being, instead of being about their their life, being about meaning or beauty or anything, their entire life is basically uh, affirming the, the norms that ultimately made someone like Abu Jahl richer. It, you know, it, it is what could be more contrary to hikmah but we see this in all societies i mean when when you look at why was there such an emphasis by the prophet والسلام, that the norms of society and this is emphasized in the quran ad nauseum that the norms of society constantly allah tells us the norms of society must be about taking care of the masakin, and the fukara, and those, uh, those sabil, and uh, um um uh, 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 Orphans, yatama, and the yatama. Constantly, Allah says, "No, no, your norms can't be about making." the powerful, more powerful and more rich. Reorient yourself. And then we look at the Prophet and his life. Where was the Prophet all the time? Was he was the richest in society? No. He was constantly sitting with the, the, the 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 most destitute elements of society that mostly lived in the mosque in Medina because they were homeless. And this is where you always found the prophet. In, 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 in dozens of reports, he, this is where he would spend most of his time and and if you wanted his companionship, you would have to accept that this is where the, the center of power has has shifted. It is not with the most privileged, the most Spoiled, it is exactly had shifted to the opposite. This is precisely why I'm so offended by what is going on in Mecca now. Because when you understand what the Sunnah of the Prophet was, it was you don't organize society to serve, to cater to the interests of the most privileged and the most wealthy. In fact, you, you you go out of your way to organize society to to the extent possible try to balance things out so that the underprivileged don't feel alienated and don't feel marginalized. When again, this is why it is contrary to Noor and contrary to the Sunnah of the Prophet. ﷺ, if you go to Mecca today and then you look at the, you know, the, the people who have money, they're, you know, in high rises overlooking the Kaaba and they're sitting in the fancy restaurants and, and if you are a poor person coming from, you know, Bangladesh or from Africa and so on, and all you can do is just keep looking and you feel marginalized. And you feel there's, there's no place for you. In fact, you know, The way things are structured now is that in do you this is amazing this is mind blowing do you know that now around the Kaaba all the spots near the Kaaba are reserved for VIP. When you go there, there are whole sections blocked off, and they tell you no, you can't pray here, you you can't be here. Why? This is for VIP for the Saudis and their guests whenever they come. And the poorer you are, the further away you are from the Kaaba. So you have to walk longer to get to the Kaaba because all the areas close in close proximity now are reserved for the rich. So the very architecture of Mecca is contrary to the entire message of our Prophet and the Quran. How is that not blasphemy? I mean, just, and that is, by the way, look at the the nature of morality. Look, when we became shameless about destroying the historical, when when we dared go to a place where Abu Bakr, you know walked and touched and we destroyed it. When we went to a place where, you know, Ali Radiallahu An was 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 present and we dared just raise it down. Next thing we dared look to our commercial interests and the commercial interests of the elite all over Mecca. We dared say, we don't care about our fellow Muslims. So, oh, Muslims in China suffering? Who cares? Oh, Muslims in, in Burma suffering? Who cares? We, mu- Muslims in India now suffering? Who cares? We dared also ignore the suffering of Palestinians. Oh, five million Palestinians who are refugees? Who cares? We, this is the nature of being shameless. You start being shameless with one thing, And then it's like a cancer. It spreads. From what? To the point that now, for the first time in Islamic history, you have people who are Muslims, supposedly, write articles and appear on on YouTube and so on and say, who cares about the Aqsa Mosque? Oh, a a mosque, and this is a well-known Saudi intellectual, who said... Oh, a mosque in Angola, Abrak, is more blessed than the Aqsa Mosque. Shamelessness. If, 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 as the Prophet said, if you have no shame, there will be no boundaries. How did Egyptians get to the point where they can help blockade and imprison their fellow Muslims? the Ghazans, in a huge concentration camp. Any Palestinian tells you if they go through the Egyptian border, the, 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 myth, the, the treatment by Egyptian soldiers of Palestinians is worse than the treatment of Israeli soldiers. How did we get to this point of shamelessness? You, you start by increments. This is, this is, it, morality is indivisible. And this is what we learn from Surah al-Nur. If, if you start chipping away at your sense of modesty and your sense of restraint vis-à-vis morality, vis-à-vis virtue, the next thing, you become worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until we get to the point that we've gotten to in the modern age. Uh, did I answer the question? I know that you I went did. off on
0: it.
1: Yeah, yeah oh, oh, the, oh, the question was about Ekman. No, that's a good question, wis- yeah. It's a good demon. point, yeah.
0: Okay, um, next question. Iblis believes in and used to worship God The nature of Iblis' disobedience is that he believes he is better than human beings and can lure human beings into disbelief. Maybe he believes that his belief in God or worship of him is enough for his salvation and that serving other creation, i.e. humans, especially when it is against his own ego or self-interest, is not necessary. This seems to parallel the attitude of the hypocrites. In the surah, Allah uses the portraits of the hypocrites and Iblis as examples of those that forget God, and God allows them to forget themselves. What does forgetting God actually entail? It seems to be the inverted statement of he who knows himself knows his Lord.
1: No, this is a really good, I mean, it's actually not a question, it's a point, um, because it's a really good point. Uh, This is precisely why in Surah Al-Nur, Allah reminds us of the the fact that of, of Iblis, once people are tempted, the, the arrogant, smug attitude of of everything that Shaitan represents, uh, of saying, you know, don't blame me for for your sins. Blame yourself because I actually I'm different. I'm morally superior. And you, know, you know that I believe in God. Um, that very last point. The, uh, there, were, there was something she said in the, about the, forgetting God
0: and. and oh oh the, yeah, like the, the forgetfulness of
1: God. Yeah, um, fer- forgetting God is God. Repre- God. Is the embodiment of all that is good, all that is pure. God represents the potentiality of goodness and purity and light. So, God is, is the potentiality, for instance that justice should reign on earth. When I come and say justice is an impossibility, we shouldn't worry about justice anymore. Forget about justice. It's not going to happen. I forgot God. Because God Is the embodiment of the potentiality of. Imagine Shaitan, if Shaitan represents all the abasement of ideals. So, in other words, Shaitan represents giving up on all ideals. There's no point to saying the truth because everyone lies. We shouldn't aspire to to speak the truth because we human beings will lie. We shouldn't aspire to be beautiful because who knows what beauty is and we're all ugly anyway. We shouldn't aspire to be just because this world is just disgusting and it's full of injustice and that's the way it's always going to be. All of that is emptying existence space of divinity. And what what are we conceding to? We're conceding to the demonic, to the shaitani. So even when you say, I don't believe in love because human beings are just, they don't, no, no one loves anyone. It's like uh, when, you, when you meet really horrible criminals, what do they say? I hate everyone. I don't believe in, in love at all. It, the belief in the potentiality of good is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Th- that is what belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is when you refuse to concede to evil, you are upholding divinity. Look at Muslim societies. Although they say they believe in Allah, but they are the most corrupt societies. They are the most unjust societies. Why? Because they no longer believe in ideals. In fact, if you believe in ideals, you're thought, you're thought to be naive and stupid. And, you know, people mock you and laugh at you. And that is why it is so easy in these societies for people to take bribes, for people to commit injustice, for people to do horrible, horrid things to each other. What is that? That is the demonic. But what is that? Ask more existentially. What is that? It is forgetting ourselves because we've forgotten our Lord. We've debased ourselves into nothing. Where truly, look at the, the end result of it. The end result of it is necropolitics. We're all dead. There's no value to human life. No value to human dignity. Why? Because we all conceded to the demonic. Allah says, honor one another. We say, no point, because, you know, everyone is a hypocrite. These are real attitudes in Muslim societies, real attitudes. What you've done is you've ejected the divine in from your life. When you say, you know, I must be crass and um, what what is the word for it? like um, you know shocking? Um,
0: edgy, edgy, provocative, huh? edgy, provocative.
1: Yeah, you know, like oh, I, I I have no shame, and I I I reject shame, and I, I'm I'm i mean, because i you know I, I i don't believe in modesty as a as a as a as a quality it, it, what is it 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 evidences a level of um, deep skepticism about the possibility of beauty among human beings and what it is it is inviting the demonic and Exiling, ejecting the divine, a Rabbani. And that is precisely why you, it is becomes, uh, in, in a lot of Muslim societies, where people say, okay, how could it be that so many people will go to Jummah, but yet we don't feel Blessed, we, we, there's so much injustice, there's so much suffering. Well, because precisely as Allah said, you forgot Allah, so you forgot yourself. But how did I forget Allah? It is not that you forgot to do your prayers or you forgot to fast Ramadan, it is you forgot what the light represents in your life that divinity is the promise of beauty. Divinity is the promise of beauty. If you give up on the promise of beauty, you've given up on Allah.
0: Alhamdulillah, thank you, that's amazing. Okay, moving on to some questions from Surah Noor. if the punishments prescribed in the Quran can be adapted with changing circumstances to other punishments of equal severity, is there room in Islamic law to develop alternative theories of justice, like rehabilitative justice, which might spread light for the victims, criminals, and society?
1: You know, absolutely, because the very, what the Quran consistently says about punishment, notice that. And this is a very big topic. The, what the Quran says about Tawbah and and the 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 way that the Quran celebrates the possibility of tauba. Um, and and the, you know, if we translate Tawbah into our modern language, that's rehabilitation. I mean, this is basically to teach. The, the main thing, though, is that we have to, I to say, the, 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 learn to think independently and creatively. Because I, I, I find it deeply troubling and this is, by the way, a very, very well-known thing in the field of human rights, that the, the, the modern human rights, which was born, encoded in modern discourses on human rights, is a level of hypocrisy that arose from the fact that with the birth of human rights, the human rights was born into our modern world with the reality of racism and the reality of colonialism. So in other words, when we invented this discourse, we didn't treat the paradoxes of racism and the, the paradoxes of the, the way that indigenous and native cultures were systematically eradicated at the same time that we spoke about human rights, so that continues to ail our discourses about human rights. So at the one, at the same time that we sit there and we talk about theories of justice, you know, whether restorative, restorative, or restorative theories of of justice, or. Um, Theories of justice that seek to uh, make whole, which is very similar. I mean, it, but at the same time, we there are deep, profound paradoxes that all human rights discourses continue to ignore. So, for instance, we talk about you know how justice should rehabilitate and restore okay fine but at the same time we the same people who talk about that are extremely reluctant to to say that in order to implement these theories you need the state to invest resources proportional to the demands of these theories. Because otherwise, then you end up with corruptions that, so you end up, for instance, putting people in prison where people are vulnerable to all types of abuses, sexual abuses and physical abuses, and then at the same time, in order to... to address your theory of restorative justice then you 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 have a counselor in prison that you know during working hours talks to prisoners about how they should improve their lives while at night that counselor goes home and the prisoners are uh, victims to or or they're left at the mercy of security guards who allow all types of abuses to take place. The, it, it, w- w- honesty in discourse re- requires that we learn to, to value honesty. I mean, w- w- what can I say? I mean, to, to actually b- b- not pretend that problems real problems don't exist, uh, that do exist, and are extremely pervasive. So, I mean, the answer, in, in my view, absolutely. But as long as we do not replicate the the ailments of so much of the, the type of... Uh, discourses that we see are uh, that are currently very um dominant about prisons and about the the justice system and because they they all suffer from these you know um, i i 'll tell you i then move on um you know i had read you know all these you know I've taken all these courses about criminal justice and 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 read all these theories and so on and then I was in um, uh, I worked for the state in arizona for for um, a, a bit anyway so part of, of part of my job is that I had to go uh, visit prisons and um, in, engage in conversations with uh, people responsible for prisons and so on. And then I, I very quickly learned that there are, when you deal with officials, there are certain things that you can talk about and things certain things that no one can talk about. No one is allowed to talk about. And what I very quickly learned, for instance, is that the despite all the theories, when it comes to real life, the prison systems are deeply racist, deeply divided along racial lines, and that there is no will or desire to have any honest discourse at any level about how race and the politics of race in prison corrupts any real attempt at civic rehabilitation or restoration. And it, it just, it, it was, you know, I was quite young at the time and it was just, it was remarkable. There's like how there were certain things that it was professional suicide if you dared insist on, so, you know, everyone spoke in a, in a very civilized fashion, but everyone was very comfortable with a very uncivilized reality. And that's precisely, you know, I, I would describe that as demonic. They're, they're, you know, that's not godly. That's not, that's not in any way beautiful or divine.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Okay, one more question. Salam alaikum Sheikh. You talked about boycotting Hajj and Umrah and Saudi for some time now, but what would you say to the students of Islamic studies who study or wish to study there? It feels very hypocritical, but financially there are no other places to study in Arabic.
1: Well, I mean, study there is different because I don't think you're benefiting them financially. Actually, most of the time when people go study there, they give you a scholarship uh i mean i don't uh, that used to be it because they they were really interested in at, at least this used uh, they the, they were really interested in controlling is, or influencing influencing very deeply the type of islam that uh, exists in the west so they would give anyone from the west who wanted to study arabic they would give them a scholarship to go study in medina um uh, so I don't know if that is a system till now, um, but uh, so a I you know uh, if if that is a system you're actually not uh, benefiting them financially you you you're taking money from them, which I think is very different. The other thing that I would say is that even if you are spending money to study Arabic there, the it's a very different thing because the type uh, hajj uh, the, the 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 business that comes from the holy sites the profits that come from the holy sites is second to oil in the uh, gross national product of saudi arabia so they've turned hajj into big business they 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 are fully aware that they have nothing other than oil. They failed in producing any type of economic development other than oil. And so they invested a great deal of money in making the holy sites a business, um, a big business. And so the whole point is to deny them, to, to basically register an objection, against you had no right to turn Mecca and Medina into a business. You had no right to destroy the the historical sites. You have no right to go against the sunnah of the Prophet the way you did. You have no right to violate the entire ethics of Islam the way you did. I think that's the point is not to boycott Saudi Arabia as a country. The point is to, to, to... Target the issue of their their treatment of the holy sites. Um, so no, I I don't think there is a there is a problem with going to Saudi Arabia to to study Arabic. Um, you know, I I as I don't think there is a problem for instance with going and working in Saudi Arabia and and just making a living there. Um, that that has nothing to do with, with with the issue of hajj specifically and and sending the message that you can't do what you're doing and we are not going to uh, we are not going to stand for what you're doing with the holy sites okay
0: thank you um, okay next question what is the difference between aura and zina and do the standards for covering the body for both men and women differ for prayer as opposed to regular social life, and how does this relate to the historic legal rulings on the covering of slaves?
1: Yeah, the issue of aura, you know, um, there's a long juristic debate about th- what is the woman's aura? what is the man's aura? what is the aura in prayer what is, whether the aura in prayer is the same as the aura outside the prayer um, and what is the aura of a a free person as opposed to a slave? These are all historical debates, and we know that if we are saying the majority, the majority position is that the aura of a man is from the knee to the navel. The aura of a woman is everything except her hand and her face and her feet. Um, The aura of a slave is debated. Um, You know, some said that a slave doesn't have to cover her hair. Um, Others said that the aura of a slave is from the knee to the navel, just like a man. And others said, no, the aura of a slave is the same as a a woman. And moreover, there are some, these are not views that survived into Islamic history that said that the aura of a man could be more than the knee and the navel, depending on the adat, uh, and Araf, and the, the, these were especially Maliki scholars, when they considered whether in societies, for instance, where it was considered ish- shameful not to wear a turban, um, or in in parts of North Africa where it was considered shameful for a man to show his face, because it was expected that a man would cover everything except the eyes. And so some Maliki jurists then said, well, you know, that, that's defined by Urf and, and so on, custom. And in traditional Islamic jurisprudence, there was an assumption that the issue of aura is also equivalent to the issue of zina. That, so that you do tabarruj by displaying the aura. And My argument is, is that I think tabarruj is an attitude, and um, and contextually defined. Tabarruj is, as we said, it is drawing attention to yourself in an modest way. Now, what is the, the in, in my view, what is the evidence for the aura of a man? Is the evidence that the man's aura is truly from the knee to the, the navel? I think that the evidence for a man's aura is not mechanically knee to the navel, but it clearly involves um, the private part. It there is evidence that at least it involves the calves, this part of the leg. I think that there is evidence that if that if the intent for instance, if a man displays his chest or his back or his arms um, f- with the intent of Tabarush to draw attention to himself, I think that depending on the Araf and the customs, that in fact could violate a man's aura. I don't think it is appropriate for a man to pray, for instance, in, in displaying everything except from the knee to the nail. I think that when you stand in prayer, that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to split hairs and say, you know, you have to cover this part or that, but, but you must have your body to the extent modestly covered how do we define modestly covered? I think it is by the Araf, by the customs of the place we're in. Some places, absolutely, you are not appropriately covered unless you have a turban. Some places, if it is common for people to stand in shorts and um, pray in shorts, in other places, it. Praying in shorts would be scandalous and disrespectful. I think it, it all goes other than the, what clearly we have cumulative evidence when it comes to men that you cannot show, and that is your aura uh, al-Mughallaza. It is modesty, the rules of modesty that are defined socially that dictate and that specify a man's aura. If a man is displaying themse- a man, displaying himself in order to get the attention of women, for instance by you know wearing a tight shirt that's that's not modest i mean in, 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 like let's say a muscular man they wear a tight shirt and say, "Look at my muscles," and this man's attention is well, I know women like that, and I know that women will, you know, flirt with me because I'm showing my muscles. How could that be consistent with with covering your aura? Then this man has violated the rule of aura. Because the behavior of this man is immodest. So modesty and or modesty is interconnected with the concept of aura in my view. And for women, I am, you know, whether covering a woman's hair is aura or part is, is uh, displaying the aura or not, as I said, again, it depends on the rules of Araf and rules of modesty in that woman's society. There are places where if a woman's hair is showing, a woman will get everyone's attention then I would say that the rules of modesty is that that woman should cover her hair. But there are other places where a woman showing her hair will not get any attention. Then that is not a part of woman's hour. Meaning, I put the crux of the matter, in my view, the crux of the matter is modesty other than the Aura al So no woman can come and say, for instance, part of my modesty is that I show my cleavage. Why? Because we have a clear text on that. No, you must cover your cleavage. Or a woman can say, you know, part of my modesty is that I wear a short skirt. And say, no, because we have a clear text on that. But other than that, I think the the parameters are the, we must achieve substantive modesty not formalistic modesty it is not a matter of putting on a uniform and saying i'm modest because what we see in our modern world a lot of women i mean and i, I can tell you that this is very prevalent in the arab world for instance you know, women will wear the the uniform. They will wear, wear the hijab, but act extremely, in extremely immodest ways. And I've seen that also. You know, in, in Indonesia and Malaysia, and in, in in. I find that that we need to re-understand the concept of aura. And that we need to understand the concept of aura as the embodiment of the concept of modesty. And that modesty is anti-tabarush. It is basically, I will not draw attention to my physical attributes because this is not a godly thing. Centering attention on people's physical attributes is a demonic thing, in my view, Allahu Alam and God knows best. I think that when we draw attentions to people's physicality and make that our standard for beauty, that this is this is it step toward godlessness rather than godliness. And allahu alam.
0: Okay, thank you. I'm going to add a little bit to the next question, which is related. Um, So the question is, do the rules of tabaraj also apply to men, which you answered? Could excessively covering up for women if it becomes objectifying by deeming them inherently sexual, would that be a form of tabaraj? But let me add this too because, you know, um, on social media, I see a lot of, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of like Muslim men who post pictures of themselves, not necessarily in a sexual way, but they are often posing like a model, and it is definitely, like if I say, is this an example of someone saying, let me draw attention to myself? I would say absolutely because I don't know. You know, I have seen pictures of the same person or several people, you know, posing and like it's almost like look at me, I'm cool. Look at my cool outfit. You know, don't I look amazing? Um, and I could say the same for women too. It, I wouldn't necessarily say it's sexual, but I would definitely say that it is like drawing attention to oneself.
1: It, you know, any time that you display yourself so that you know there's a there's a concept of igazah. Igaza is to cause envy or to sort of like when you when you prick, prick other people to say I have it, you don't. when you display your wealth and those who do not have, look at your wealth and feel inferior, that's a form of Tawarosh. When you display your... Um, so it is... I, you know... Whether what you're talking about is tabarruj or not, well, it depends on the intent and depends on the consequence. Uh, but it is, I would describe it as a behavior that tends towards immodesty. Now, every time you're immodest, there is, you are risking incurring sin. How much sin, it could be a very small sin or it could be a big sin, depending on whether you are contributing to darkness and ugliness. So if you are consistently, you know, day after day, posing and showing yourself off and basically sending a message to people, you're not as handsome as me, you're not as wealthy as me. You're not as cool as me. You're not. Eventually, the, the you know even if you're talking uh, committing saqeer, they accumulate, accumulate, accumulate until it becomes a big problem. The whole attitude that Allah teaches us, the Nurani attitude, is get over. Material things get over your physicality, deal with people so that you heal their hearts, not cause their hearts to burn. The whole you know, imagine put it this a, a different way who is our standard in life? Who's supposed to be? Our example in life, the Prophet mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Ask yourself: Would the Prophet do it? If the answer is the Prophet would not do it, then that is reason for caution. Then be very careful, because you could be treading upon something that would bring the demonic into your life? Would the prophet pose to show how cool his clothes is? Would the prophet pose to show how sexy his smile is? Would the prophet pose to show the twinkle in his eye so that women will melt and say I mean if, if you say, no, I don't want that standard, then you have to look very deep into yourself. Because if, if you want to live life without the Prophet as your standard, then I, I don't know what you're about. Then, you know, it's not for me to say you're not a Muslim, but I just say you have a very strange Islam, Islam I, that I don't recognize. The the, the Norani example of the Prophet, Ali or, you know, those of you who have read Nahj, Nahj al-Balagha, the example of Ali bin Abi Talib, it's a, a clear example of a Nurani person. And I'm saying Ali because of Nahj al-Balagha and the many examples in Nahj al-Balagha that directly inform your attitude towards the others, whether you make them literally the the art of healing hearts, dealing with other human beings to uplift them, not cause envy or jealousy or uh, social divisions or... It, 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 it that is the, the beauty of iman. That is the beauty of surrendering to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala.
0: So the the second part of that last question, um, had to do with sort of objectifying women. So if the idea is you excessively cover, does that then you know? And let me add this because I, it, this came across my feed just for whatever reason there was a a nikabi woman that i came across on instagram and she had posted many posts about herself and one of this one of the things that she said was sort of a joke and she said well i've heard that on some of my comments offended some of you and then she says well i'm sorry i actually meant to offend all of you and then i like went and looked through her her thing and you know obviously she was very proud to talk about how You know, women have to be covered, and you know, just a lot of the very traditional views. But then I thought, well, that's very interesting that you have this huge Instagram, twenty-two thousand plus followers, you know, and constantly posting. And I thought this is very interesting irony. (laughs) But so the point about objectifying women, but then also drawing attention to yourself in this way.
1: I mean, I I don't know if uh, maybe if her followers are follow her because of her intellectual points or. Or,
0: I didn't get that. It wasn't an intellectual. <laughs> I, no,
1: I mean, if, if it's because of her clothes or her poses or whatever, then there is a risk of Tabarroj, I mean, I, but a risk. Notice that I always qualify things because it, it, it is an invitation for introspection and reflection. It is not for me to say, oh, that is it, it is. It is to say, be cautious, be careful think about what your motivations are if if ultimate, i mean one of the, the the things that i don't know why it it really bothers me um the 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 explosion of the hijab fetish among um what I mean by that is that there is now this this fetish about uh hijabis sexual fetish that a lot of non-Muslims have, um, and, and including the Kabis, by the way. And I find that just deeply troubling. Um, it, it, is, it is part of Islamophobia, and it is part of the sexualization of the colonial subjects, and it's, it's part of I- I- I claiming authority and dominance over indigenous populations because that fetish exploded after the invasion of Iraq and invasion of Afghanistan and the the sexual fantasizing of soldiers uh, about the women they encountered in these lands. And, you know... I find it deeply troubling that that Muslims are just oblivious to to things like that. Instead of instead of seeing it as as an obscenity, as something extremely immodest that is directed at us, uh, we just pr- like to pretend to ignore it. And there's no question that a lot of Muslim women contribute to the fetishizing of the hijab and the niqab. And I think that is a problem. You you have to, there's one thing if that fetish exists and you do nothing to contribute to that fetish, but To contribute to the sexualizing of Muslim women in that way, I think is a problem.
0: Okay, and last question. Sorry, I know that we this issue of makeup, uh, but I thought I would just read this because um, maybe to get one last statement about it. Um, So my question is regarding. Day 4 video where Dr. Ebelfuddle talks about makeup. How can one define what makeup is going to create attraction or attention or one that is simple? Makeup itself, it's more than just mascara or foundation. Um, it will extenuate your features, make you look gorgeous. Can doc- the doctor explain what he meant by bold makeup? I mean, some people are beautiful to begin with and even if they wear the slightest bit of makeup, they will get attention. I mean, if I like to enhance my features by wearing bold eye, bold eye makeup or red lipstick, am I going against Islam? This is a little confusing. And that's the question. But also I want to point out, someone said, you know, one, one of my favorite examples in our society of a really, like, powerful, um, bold social justice woman is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, if people know her, you know, she's like... Um, very social justice oriented she's one of the progressives in our government um she's super smart and she's known sometimes for putting on very bold red lipstick but i think that i mean in my opinion maybe you can comment on it i don't see that that is in her example in her case trying to draw attention to herself you know it's not i wouldn't consider that to baruj i would i don't know i don't know what i would call that but you know, you've you have already said many times so much has to do with attention and you know. But no,
1: in fact, I mean, she uh, she often. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I looked her I looked up yesterday I looked this up, and she seems to like have turned her lipstick into a sign of asserting her power, um, like it's a like a declaration of. Of you know, I'm coming. Um, you know, um, so but it, it, I that yeah it, that doesn't strike me as tabarruj. In fact, it 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 strikes me as, but to get to the, um, uh, part. Listen. Ask yourself. One is what is your intent? If if your intent is to get uh to to display yourself so that you would get sexual attention then you, you then you have something to think about then you you need to be very careful because but second what is the actual we learn how do we learn what is tabaruj or not we often learn from trial and error from practice So, if you put on makeup and you do notice that, you know, let's just, you know, take a hypothetical, a little bit exaggerated. You know, you put on makeup and you notice that men are staring at you and that you're getting men turning around and like, you know, you're melting the hearts of men, then obviously... Tone it down. Then, you know, if you put on some color and you notice that you just look like everyone else at work and you're not getting any extra attention, um, then you might be fine. So everything is in context. Um, and I think, I mean, yes, you're right. There are standards of who's beautiful, who's not beautiful. You know, this, this type of stuff. But it is all focused on your intent. Are you putting yourself at this, in display? Are you displaying yourself? And balance that intent against actual results. So, you know think about, okay, what type of norms, what type of messages am I sending? and are these the messages that I do want to send? Do I want to send you know if I'm everyone's staring at me, am I fine with, do I want to send a message that I am an object to like a, like a, you know a vase for people to stare at? so that people can objectify me and fantasize about me. I would submit to you that that shouldn't be desirable to you, that you shouldn't want that, that that's the baruch. And so you say, okay, well, how do I tone it down where I still feel that I'm not going around looking pale, for instance, or I still feel good about myself but at the same time, I'm not making myself a fetish. I'm not making myself an object of sexual desire. Balance that, and and I again, I I want to um, uh, re. Reaff- I I want to uh, emphasize what Grace said earlier about reading the piece that Sherry wrote, because it is really important that you reflect upon. What are my standards in life? I mean, is, is it that I'm, I care so much about makeup because I'm a materialistic person? And am I adding to beauty? Am I adding to goodness? Am I adding to the light in life? Am I contributing to a society that the society that we created where appearances... Are everything and people, you know, there are all these social ailments because of the way that we are materialistic human beings. If you, if you, if your conscience is bothering you, then that's a good sign that you might, you should tone it down. That you should, in fact, if you find that you have your conscience is not bothering you about displaying yourself, then that might be a good indication that you need to work on your piety. You need to work on your values coming from your relationship to Allah, not from your relationship to society. I know that Muslims are accustomed to hard and fast rules, but much more important Hard and fast rules can be immoral cop-out because they teach you to be morally lazy. They teach you to just simply say, oh, well, I'll apply black and white and I don't need to think about it anymore. And then we end up with exactly the results that we do have. You know, people that wear the hijab and become a sexual fetish. complete. Paradox Instead of black and white rules Develop your relationship with Allah Understand What Allah wants What Allah says Don't Don't make supreme In your life material values That don't turn yourself into a fetish don't turn yourself into don't objectify yourself. Give priority to your the goodness of your personality and the goodness of your intellect. Make that what you put forward, not your physical appearance. Internalize these things. And then and then and it, there is nothing wrong with learning from experience. You know, today I wore something. And when I wear something, I notice that I'm getting a lot of stares. That, you know, I notice I'm getting some looks that I'm not comfortable with. So what I what do I learn? I shouldn't wear that again. What's wrong with that? It doesn't need to be all black and white like that. You know, I wear something and I find that You know, everything's fine. And I'm comfortable with it. And it's not violating any of the, you know, I'm not showing cleavage. I'm not exposing my legs. And I say, okay, well, alhamdulillah, then, you know, that teaches me that this is part of modesty.
0: And and Jim made a comment. It's also now becoming something that young teens and young women among Gen Z are also now feeding into that fetish fetish by making comments about themselves as sexual objects to get attention in their social media um, and think light of it among their friends when talking about attracting guys. It's actually quite disturbing. I noticed that too. No, yeah,
1: it it is. I mean, I I was reading... um, I'm I'm scheduled to to teach human trafficking in the spring, and, you know... you start reading yeah anyway so I, I was reading and among the most popular most popular porn sites in the world are hijab fetish sites that that's just and and these are i mean i i don't know who are who's who's you know i don't know who are whether the these are i mean i'm not claiming that these are muslim actually muhajabas i you know i don't know who what the heck is, is shown on these sites but but the very idea is is, is when you put it along with what aljam is mentioning it, it it's uh you know it reminds me of the way that colonial powers, when they first conquered the Muslim world, fetishized the veil. They, they were obsessed with the idea of the woman's veil who covered the face that was like uh, transparent, showed the eyes and was transparent. And they used to pay locals i mean probably uh, women from anyway uh, but they would it was a thing there's it it, it it's a, it's a whole discipline this was in the in, in, in the uh, early 1900s it was just was introduction of ca- cameras and film what yeah. just with the introduction of uh, they would it was very popular to take these postcards of Muslim women with their, wearing the face and otherwise, you know, largely unclosed. And they would s- send these as postcards back home as, oh, here are the Muslim women, local Muslim women. And that's, I mean, they, turning Islamic symbolisms, uh, uh, contributing to the objectifying and sexualizing of Islamic symbolisms like that, uh, I find it just, um, I find that's Tabarush. That's the heart of
0: Tabarush. Absolutely. Should I keep going or do you want
1: to be okay? Uh, how many? I
0: still have about five questions. Oh
1: my God, no. Five is too much. <laughs> uh, what time is it? Nine
0: thirty. Uh, okay, why don't I I can combine them yeah. and then you can choose what you want to answer. Okay. okay. Um, so many reports don't put Aisha in Aisha in a flattering light. For example, that she was jealous and the Prophet's favorite wife. I struggle with not seeing the Prophet as unfair for having favorites amongst his wife's, wives wives. Uh, What is the reliability of these reports, and does the fact that the Prophet spent his dying moments with Aisha suggest anything in this regard? Next question. Uh, Verse 33 mentions that God is forgiving and merciful towards slaves who have been forced into prostitution. But if sexual coercion is a form of abuse and horrible injustice, then why do they need forgiveness? How does this apply to rape survivors and those coerced into prostitution, like in today's sex trafficking? The verse also says, quote, if they desire to be chaste, why is this condition stipulated? Um, Next, could the command to cover breasts also be historically contextualized? For instance, there are tribes where women's breasts are not sexualized, and so women go out with them exposed. What about breastfeeding in public if a woman needs to? Um, Next, much of what you've taught in the Halakhas so far challenges the mainstream. For example, polygamy, problematic hadiths, etc., any advice on teaching children who would be who will be exposed to such problematic beliefs without confusing them and then the last one is there is a report that the ifk incident incident is about maria the copt being accused of having ibrahim from another man is there any basis to this
1: okay so these are wow a lot of um <laughs> Very quick. okay the the the, the reports about maria the cop um being accused of having a brain from another man and that that's the if incident that is a complete fabrication it has no basis um and most i mean not most i am seeing every scholar that i know in in the islamic tradition has shown that this was um uh Part of what I think it is important to, for people to, to know is that it, when Mecca is defeated, numerous tribes, whole tribes, entered into Islam because they saw if, if Quraysh was defeated, which they believed that Quraysh would not be defeated. And if if Quraysh itself was defeated, they sort of like just gave up on resisting Muslim power. And upon entering Islam, but the sad reality is that there were a lot of reports in the Sira circulated by people who had converted in appearance only. In other words, they converted for political reasons, but they continued to not believe, not follow the prophet, and in fact, and this is a very big topic, but even continued to be largely hostile to the prophet. And there were many traditions circulated that were designed to slander the the character of the prophet or to make the prophet or his family appear in an unflattering light. So it's not surprising to, to see, uh, I mean, the good news is that most of these reports were called for what they are. I mean, it, most of the times the Muhaddithun were able to point that in the chain of transmission was this person and that person, and they were known as liars and fabricators and so on. However, in my view, not all of these reports were caught. Um, Unfortunately, the Muhaddithun ended up accepting a certain percentage of these reports as authentic so, for instance, that incident was a satanic versus. I mean, that's a very good example of something that was invented to make the prophet look not very flattering. Or invented to, to, to something that was not very flattering to, vis-a-vis the prophet by people that had an incentive. Um, okay. The, this is, um, the reports about Aisha... Um, we know that the I would just counsel a, a dosage of healthy skepticism um, about this. Why? Because in the what eventually becomes the Shia tradition there were many narratives that aimed to deny Aisha a special role. And the reason for that is because of Aisha's political stance vis-à-vis Ali, especially in the Battle of the Camel. And in response to that, there were a politically motivated attempt to bolster up Aisha's um position to exaggerate um her um her role at the time of the Prophet. Alayhi um and so you're right that, you know, you should be skeptical of, um, we we know, now that, the, the report about, it it is entirely conceivable that his wives, the wives of the Prophet wasallam would come at the end and say, well, let's not keep moving him because it, it, he was quite ill before his death. Um, and let's just keep him at one place. And you know whether the the fact that it happened to be the Aisha's home, I I think is neither here nor there, because uh, although you know we we are told in some northern world they chose Aisha's home because that's where he was the happiest. Um, there are many different reasons that this is. All we know is that the, 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 the wives of the Prophet ﷺ chose Aisha's home but as to why, whether it was because just for convenience, whether it was because he was the happiest, whether, I mean, the, the thing about the, the uh, because he was the happiest is that it's speculative. It's it, We don't have a report where the Prophet says, well, you know, I'm happiest at Aisha's place. But there is Speculation as to why Aisha's home was chosen, uh, although there is a an a, a, um, unreliable version that says that the Prophet requested that he be kept at Aisha's home specifically. So your 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 sense of skepticism about. These reports, especially in sunni sources, i think is 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 um, is very reasonable um, similarly by the way, are all the reports about uh, aisha's jealousy uh, which sometimes make her appear in unflattering lights um these reports in turn um could have also you know ha- have a question mark about them there there's is a issue um anyway um so this is aisha oh the the um uh, about forgiveness the the reason for, is that, What's the question? this is about, um, verse 33 mentions God is forgiving and merciful towards slaves who have been forced into prostitution. But if sexual coercion is a form of abuse and horrible injustice, then why do they need forgiveness? They need forgiveness because in the Because no slave after the this revelation and you know before this revelation, Allah but that no slave would let's put it this way, um, should succumb to coercion. In prostituting themselves, there are jurists who even went as far as saying that even if the threat is death, then you should not prefer death over prostituting yourself. Others have said that if the threat is death or torture, that and you the slave ends up prostituting. Uh, herself that um, that that, that means that they they would not be punished. So in other words, coercion acts as, um, it expunges the punishment but still they would oh God, istighfar, oh God repentance. It's like if someone puts a gun to my head and say eat pork, and even if I eat the pork, and I'm excused for eating the pork, I the the, the proper edibles with Allah is to still say Allah forgive me for the fact that I was forced to eat the pork. It is not so, it, and to put this in its proper historical context is that among the, the, the common practice is that we're not even talking about the type of coercion where people were threatened um, with um, violence or threatened to be put to death. Often, all that the coercion involved would, that the master would say, um, if... I want you to do this and I will allow you by doing this to keep a portion of the proceeds. So in fact, one of the very, in my view, one of the very surprising thing is that it was even called ikrah at all. Because when you look at what the, especially the six slaves complained about when they went to the Prophet, and they said that our owner is, there wasn't there wasn't a threat uh, they, they weren't beaten they weren't threatened with death one of them was threatened to be, that she's going to be sold and she didn't want to be sold for whatever reason there was another one that um complained that of insults and yelling and the others is not clear other than they were told that they they ask the prophet, you know, we, we have, because they ask him specifically about the money that they made from this and say, well, you know, we have been told that we, for many, for a long time, we keep part of the money that we make. We give I don't, most of it to our uh, owners, but the percentage we keep, should we donate this money or are we allowed to keep it? That's why we know about the financial arrangement. So um, I wouldn't. I mean, you have to understand just the historical context in terms of the the reference in verse thirty three, and um, this has. This is not. Don't read from that, or impute from that situation unto the issue of sexual assault or rape or uh, coercion into prostitution is, uh, gets into the, the, you know, or did the coercion deny one the ability to exercise their willpower or did it overcome their will completely so that, in fact, we cannot say that they acted voluntarily in any sense. And there's you know there's a whole discussion about uh in the Islamic tradition about what type of coercion does is the verse referring to when it says that they were coerced um, yeah if they desire to be chaste, um this is. This goes back to the, the grammatical. Um, this is not a stipulation and or not a condition. This is a grammatical form where the desire to be chaste is in fact an irrebuttable presumption. So it's like saying to you. Um, take your medicine if you want to live. It doesn't mean that I'm saying it's okay for you not to want to live. But in fact, I am assuming that you want to live and that's why you should take your medicine. Or if I say the, the same thing, um... Don't jump in front of a train if you want if you want to live again it's not that I'm saying I am entertaining the possibility that you in fact rationally will jump before a train, but I am assuming that you should not be jumping in front of a train so the 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 grammatical structure in arabic that's how. Although it it becomes unclear in translation, because of the way that some translators, I I wouldn't have translated it as if you want to be chased or something like that. Um, but I would have translated as as they want to be chased, X Y Z, because they want to be chased, then X Y Z. Um, okay yeah about the covering the breast um, I had actually sort of avoided saying anything about that because it just it, it's very interesting that um, in the Islamic tradition there is no condemnation of breastfeeding now here is where you get into cultural perhaps cultural assumptions in reading the text everyone understood that that when the command is cover uh, the, to to strike the khimar on the jaib is that the the intention is stop exposing your chests the way that you do but what is interesting is cont- unlike western law that was introduced in, in,
0: um, you
1: know, the colonial era, uh, there is... I can't think of a single scholar that said it is improper or immoral for a woman to breastfeed in public. And my sense is, is that that's more a product of the culture, that because it was culturally widely practiced, that no one imagined that it would be um, unacceptable. So, and, you know, in traditional parts, even as a, you know, when I think in, for instance, in traditional, non-westernized parts of Egypt, for instance, as I was growing up, it was quite common for a traditional woman to breastfeed in public. Um, And if anyone looked at them, it would be considered very weird. I mean, you would be considered sort of sick um, if you gawked at a woman for breastfeeding in public. With urbanization, this is changing. So I've noticed that Modern Muslim scholars uh, tend to look at that as obscene, rather than natural. That, well, if you know, you shouldn't be breastfeeding in public. While it, it's, but that's a very recent development. That's the value, of, by the way, of anthropology and sociology in documenting. Because we, we assume that the attitudes that we have now have always existed in history, and that's not true. Uh, the, the issue of um, historical rests me. The one thing that's interesting is there are Maliki Fatawa when Islam was spreading in Africa, um, in sub Saharan Africa. And this is fa- around Timbuktu and um, Madagashkar and fatawa um, uh, of Omani scholars in Sahel um, uh, al-Aj and the areas that were all part of the Omani Empire and so on. And is there a it's the door. It's okay. Oh. I thought it was uh, thunder. Um, And whether, Islam encountered tribes and clans where women did not cover. Um, And basically the, the question that arose is how vigilant should the dua, uh, those who were uh, spreading Islam, who were mostly merchants, by the way, and uh, businessmen, um, be about telling these women to cover their bosoms. And there were, uh, among Omani jurists, or Ibadi jurists, that's another, that, and Maliki jurists were remarkably Tolerant attitude to even say if they pray with their, they pray in their traditional um, uh, clothes, um, it, that their prayer is still valid, even if their bosoms are are uncovered. I mean that's even too radical for me. I mean the idea that um, I, I can't get comfortable with that idea, although I've read it in. Um, and at one point, I even thought maybe I should collect these fatwa and publish them or write an article about them. And then I thought, do I, do I really want to be known as the person who defended the idea? No, I you know, so I thought, let someone else do it um, if they want to. It uh, Since everything in our modern world gets misunderstood and people don't understand what scholarship is about and, you know, and so on. But yeah, it's very interesting that um finally um the issue about children you know
0: um, children being exposed want to y- just explain. Oh, yeah,
1: the, the 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 saying um Much of what you taught in the Halakas so far challenges the mainstream polygamy, problematic hadith. Any advice on teaching children who will be exposed to such problematic beliefs without confusing them? Okay. Maybe I'll give... My mother ingrained in me through her own example, as a living example of such a person, is that um, work first on your relationship with Allah. Your relationship with Allah has to be intimate and beautiful, close, that you aspire towards qurba lillah meaning being very close, and that you aspire for an yulki alaikallah muhabbatah that Allah would, would would make you the object of Allah's love. That that Allah would love you as you love Allah. And that Know in your heart that Islam is always humane. Islam is always reasonable. Islam is always beautiful. If... Never believe that Islam can be otherwise. And that your relationship with Allah will tell you that Islam is those things. If something strikes you, you experience something that is inconsistent with these convictions, that Islam is reasonable, Islam is beautiful, Islam is the embodiment of hikmah, and reasonableness, then trust that there is the, a flaw. Either the flaw is in your understanding or the understanding of others. But that your knowledge has not caught up with the beauty and the reasonableness and the decency That that there's something missing. And we need that to instill in our children this attitude, especially in an age where so many Muslims have lost this sense of natural confidence in their faith. To the extent that it has become a real fitna for the face of so many people because they they, they 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 see so much ugliness and so much lack of reasonableness so you instill in your child and this is what you 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 constantly that listen you know people will will, Suspend judgment either until you have the opportunity to properly study something. Because rest assured that with true knowledge you will always discover at the end that Allah is nothing but Irahman Rahim. That Allah is nothing but An-Nur that whatever is dhalami, whatever is darkness, cannot be a part of Allah. Either suspend judgment until you have the opportunity to study it, or suspend judgment indefinitely if you never have the opportunity to study it. What must be the anchor, what be the, the backbone, is the belief in who Allah is. How do we know who Allah Because Allah describes Allah's self as that. If Allah keeps telling us, I am a Rahman Rahim, I am a Rahman Rahim, I am a Rahman Rahim, repeatedly, time and time again, if our understanding of Rahma ends up in tension with our conviction in Rahma, then teach your child to have the confidence to say, I don't know, but maybe someday I will learn, and to leave it at that. I can testify that that was what turned my, that's what fueled my passion for knowledge, and that every time I suspended judgment until I studied the matter, every single time I found that my absolute conviction in Allah's beauty, reasonableness, justice, fairness, mercy, was thoroughly vindicated. But, you know, I had a choice. Either I say, you know, Either I, I let go of my Iman, which for I knew that it's something that I couldn't live with, or I not find out and suspend judgment indefinitely until I die and do other things in life like make money, or I commit myself to suspending judgment but then finding out. And that's what I did. Because I wasn't happy was the first choice, letting go of my faith, and I wasn't happy was the second choice. You know, focusing on making money, like practicing law and so on, and never finding out. But the journey with the third choice, although very hard, very trying, very taxing but it is well worth it to set an example for others perhaps my journey can give others the confidence maybe you don't have the time to commit yourself to finding to to vindicate your beliefs but between the option of abandoning your faith because you see ugliness it, 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 as far as I'm concerned, that's not an option. It it is it is it is the equivalent of, you know, basically telling th- Shaitan take me. Um, so. I don't know, you know. It it is we are so afraid to teach our children. Trust in Allah's beauty. My belief is that when I compare the the, the absolute confidence, for instance, that when Sheikh, when Sheikh Ghazali wrote, Hamad al-Ghazali, wrote his message to his son, his famous Rasala to his son, and the absolute confidence by which he tells his son that know that Allah is the truth, Allah is the light, Sharia is the truth, Sharia is the light, the, the absolute confidence what ibn qayyim al writes in about how sharia is absolute justice and whatever is unjust cannot be a part of sharia even if you know it, it, people cite this interpretation when i compare that confidence with our modern muslim complete lack of confidence and I ask myself, what is the difference? And I, the answer, in, in my view, is clear. These people had their, their, their izzah, their, their, their sense of dignity and their sense of confidence because their minds were not colonized. All of us, we labor under colonized minds. We, the minute I tell someone, believe in Allah's beauty... Believe in Allah's justice. Say, but, you know, how is that good enough? You know, but what if, you know, how can we just trust in Allah's justice and Allah's beauty rather than, you know, connect the dots, specific manual instructions? Because I don't know if I can just be guided by an absolute belief in allah's goodness um, if there are any wealthy people out there, it is all your fault uh, it, it it is it is the 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 lack of capital support no one can make capital and develop intellect no, If you spent your life developing capital, you have no intellect. Forget the pretense that you have the intellect. Be humble enough to say, I have no intellect, but I can support those who have the intellect. And those who have intellect, don't even pretend that you'll have capital in your life. You're a beggar, you're going to live a beggar, and die a beggar. The whole thing is that the people of capital support the people of intellect. That's the happy marriage that creates the the type of civic engagement where people are actually confident in Allah's mercy and Allah's justice and Allah's beauty as long as the people of capital want to see money spent so that they can be the people of great intellect the great leaders of the ummah the great you know inspiration for the ummah and the people of intellect you know basically dwell in obscurity uh, and marginality and eventually lose heart and then want to go, you know, the height of their aspiration is let me go teach in a in a good secular school where I kiss up to orientalists and, you know, hope that they'll give me tenure. We're never going to go anywhere. We're, we're going to be stuck in this forever. On that happy note. <laughs>
0: Alhamdulillah, I think that is honestly, I mean, what you shared about how what, what your mother taught you is a really beautiful way to end this whole engagement with Surah Noor and Surah Hash. Um, and we we are so grateful to be the recipient of all of that hard work and all of that passion. And, you know, we get that now through the Tafsir, but pretty much in everything. Can, can I that, give
1: you one final example? Yeah. Look okay. at I I used to read in books of Sharia. They would talk about a repeat offender, and there is this debate about if a repeat offender you cut off the 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 right uh, the the left uh, hand, and then you cut off cut off if they repeat you cut off the right foot, and then if they repeat you can you know until basically they become handless and footless. So I was telling my mother about this and reading to her some of the the texts i was studying and she looked at me and said what is this (laughs) Allah you want to say Allah would leave someone with, with, with no feet where they can walk anywhere and no hands where they can't even clean themselves or take or bathe or feed themselves and he said, well, this is, you know, there, there's this evidence, this evidence. He said, I don't care about your evidence. It is impossible that Allah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim would ever approve of something like this. And we, you know, of course, I was a hothead back then. And it's like, you know, oh, you know, but Sheikh this said this and Sheikh that said, this. said I don't care about you and your sheikhs. You know, I know my, my God would never approve of this. And, of course, you know, went off hotheaded. Years later, I studied and studied and studied the origins of these opinions, and you know what? She was completely right, because the the scholars, the early scholars, articulated the same view that even those who said that you could sever the hand, the, the left hand, say, the, 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 and, and, many of them, of the earliest views, was that upon a, a repeat offender would be no further cutting because you cannot leave a human being as... That's even if you accept the punishment of... But it just struck me that after a journey of about 10 years that I came full circle to what my mother just knew by her Iman, her faith. That's what I, I mean when you when you instill that confidence about Allah and who Allah is. And that comes from all her, you know, hours of worship and her hours of intimacy with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alhamdulillah,
0: I I love the stories about Mama because she was truly beautiful and just so wise it's so many ways and sh- you know so much of what we cover is like I, I see her in it um, so I know like I mean Huda has a beautiful comment that's exactly what I believed and did my whole life and how I kept researching until I found professor Abel Fuddle's books and thank you for consistently filling our hearts with light every single halakha and I think that that is how all of us feel I know that This was really powerful for me even before I knew you because I had so many questions (laughs) as a convert and after I knew you too. I mean, it's like every time I had a question about something in the world that struck me as ugly or strange, you know, you answered so many questions about that it finally dawned on me. Well, first of all, the one thing that always comforted me before I knew you was, if Islam can satisfy someone at that, you know, a scholar of that level of curiosity and depth of knowledge and still, you know, have, like you you would often say there was so much more that you didn't know, but if it satisfied someone of intellect so much greater than my own, that was always a validation for me. But after I met you, when you started to demonstrate and explain to me, you know, all the different reasons why Islam was always beautiful, always reasonable, always just, always this, it, it just became clear and self-evident that it's because of a lack of understanding or knowledge that, you know, to suspend judgment is a really powerful, um, it was a powerful transformation for a convert who really, you know, wanted to believe something beautiful. And I know that a lot of people have had that experience when they have found your scholarship and, and engaged with it. And so, I mean, I we're... I'm so grateful, I know we're all so grateful that these were the choices you made. You know, either let go of your Iman or suspend judgment and go ju- go make money or suspend judgment and find out the truth. And if you hadn't made that choice, then we wouldn't be sitting here and benefiting from all of this beautiful knowledge. So thank you so much. I think this is a perfect way to end Sora Noor. Thank you for everyone being with us. I look forward to our next surah, inshallah, <laughs> um, on Tuesday. So hopefully, inshallah, inshallah. Um, thank you for everyone who submitted questions. Thank you to Rami for helping me organize uh, a whole list of questions. I'm sorry if we didn't get to your question. Um, but inshallah, you know, there's so much learning in all of this. Hopefully, we will cover whatever we didn't weren't able to cover tonight somewhere along the way. So thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of the week, weekend. Um, And we will see you Tuesday, inshallah.
3: (laughs) As-salamu
0: alaykum.